good afternoon, everybody. Um, my name is Mike Savage. I'm director of the LSE International Inequalities Institute and professor of sociology. And uh, very, very, keen, very, very pleased to welcome you all and to what should be a very exciting event um, about uh, how the rich should pay more tax. I just want to say a, a brief word about the fact that the work which Aaron Advani and Andy Summers will be talking about is part of a theme of research we're leading in the International Inequalities Institute around the issue of wealth and tax justice. And please expect over the coming months and uh, years even to see a lot more work as we push this, this agenda forward. Um, speaking as a sociologist, I see the issue of wealth, taxation and tax justice as crucial to think about all issues of equity. It's, it, it isn't a narrow technical issue, it straddles all issue, issues about how we live, a, live in a fairer and more equitable society. So I'm really looking forward to the event today and I'm, without further hesitation, I'm going to pass straight on to Ed Conway, who's the economics correspondent of Sky News, to, to uh, lead off and uh, introduce the event. Thank you, Ed. Thanks, Mike. Um, yeah, so I'm Ed Conway. I, I cover economics for, uh, for Sky News and I write a column for The Times. And actually, I first came across uh, the work that uh, Andy and uh, Aaron are doing at the moment when I, I uh, did a column about this not that long ago about how there were there were academics holed up in in a mysterious dark room somewhere on Canary Wharf looking into tax records that are going to solve this riddle of uh, why it is that it's seemingly inequality has gone down when actually you know anecdotally it looks like uh, you know there are many signs that it's gone up and so now they've been released from their their uh, dark room in Canary Wharf and they can tell us all about it and obviously as you'll probably have seen they've already done one paper uh, very interesting on capital gains tax and now uh, they're going to tell us uh, about another and Aaron will do a presentation in a moment. Let me just run through uh, the way this is going to work. Um, so thank you all for, for, for coming. Um, first of all, um, Aaron Abani, he is uh, Assistant Professor of Economics at uh, Warwick's Cage Research Centre. He will present the research, um, and I believe he's got some slides and charts and things uh, that you will see. That will take about 15 minutes. Uh, and then uh, we'll get a response uh, from Helen Miller. She's Deputy Director uh, the IFS, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, of course, uh, head of the tax sector. She will respond for about five minutes. Um, and then Emma Agyamang, who is at the FT reporting on wealth, taxes, personal finances, and so on. Um, she will respond for five minutes uh, at that stage. I will say a little something, although I may not even be for five minutes. Um, but we really want you to send in as many questions as you can uh, on both the Q&A function uh, in Zoom um, and if you're watching via Facebook on the live stream, then you can leave comments, uh, leave questions in the comments section. Please uh, list your name, your affiliation and location, as well as your question. Uh, and what we'll do is we'll try and filter through those questions and ask as many of them uh, as we can to the panel. Uh, and if you are tweeting about this, use the hashtag LSE Wealth, LSE Wealth. Um, but without further ado, I will pass over to uh, Aaron for his uh, presentation. Aaron. Great. Uh, thanks very much, Ed. Uh, so as Ed said, this is um, work on how much tax the rich actually pay. And this is based on uh, tax data from HMRC, uh, where we have completely anonymized access to tax records of everyone in the country. And so we can look at how much tax people are actually paying in practice. That means I should obviously tell you that these uh, data, although they're using tax data from HMRC, nothing we're saying is representing the views of HMRC. These are our views only. So you might even wonder why there's a kind of question of how much tax people are paying. If you're like most people, you probably have just a single job, you're employed by somebody, and what you pay in tax is what your employer takes away from you uh, for you and kind of sends to HMRC, and what you get is the net pay, the bit you get after tax has been taken away. So an example of this is here somebody with £100,000 of income, they work for a company, they have all their income as earned income, that means they are employed to get this money, and they have a certain amount of money that's completely tax-free, that's the personal allowance, then they pay the basic rate of tax on a, on a chunk more of income, and then they pay the higher rate. And then on top of all of that, there's also national insurance, which is essentially a tax on, uh, earnings, on, on earnings, on income that comes from employment. Uh, and so stacking all of those bits together for somebody with £100,000 of income, they would pay almost £35,000 in tax. So we'd say that they have a 35% average tax rate, effectively. Now, the thing is that although 75% of all income comes in this form of earnings, 
25% of all income obviously doesn't. Uh, and that's true even if you look only at people above £100,000 of income. Uh, and so you may instead have income that comes from investments or pensions. So think about somebody who has uh, a network of properties that they rent out. And when they rent their properties out, they get income. Their income still is £100,000, like the first person. Um, they have the same income tax schedule. They pay the same income taxes. But they're not required to pay national insurance contributions because this, these are earnings from uh, these, are, these are income from investment rather than from earnings. Yet again, another level, you may have all your money coming in in dividends. In that case, the dividend tax rates are lower still. Uh, this is for 2015-16, which is what the majority of our results today will be based on. And so rates back then meant you would have been paying about 14.5% uh, on average of your income, of your £100,000. Uh, those rates have gone up uh, since then. Um, they're still substantially lower than uh, rates from investment or from earnings, but they are lower. Uh, and then finally, there's capital gains. So capital gains are not considered typically to be income, although in some early work that Ed mentioned, uh, we show that a lot of capital gains look like something that could otherwise have been income that's been sort of repackaged and restructured in a way that means it has access to the lower tax rates that are available for capital gains. Um, so there are these different kind of ways in which you can get money. And depending on where your money comes from, there are different tax rates that, are, that kind of are available to you in practice. And so naturally, there's a sort of incentive to structure your income in a way that gets you access to the lower rates. No one is surprised by that. So what's going to be important for understanding the tax rates that are paid by uh, people with different high levels of income is trying to understand the extent to which these different kinds of incomes, you know, the, the example I've given you are someone who has only income from earnings, only income from dividends, only income from gains, which is technically not considered income, but you might think of it as money that you receive. Um, these, if this stuff was all equally distributed across different kinds of people, these rates would be the same for everybody, although they would still then be different uh, from the earned income rate, this rate at the very top. One thing I should say as, a, as a kind of important caveat here, where I've shown this bar on dividends, this bar on dividends and similarly the bar on earnings, what we focused on is personal taxes. That's a tax that the government says I am required to pay. There are, of course, other taxes that are out there. That includes where I have national insurance contributions. We focused on national insurance contributions that are incident on an employee. That is, the law says, as an employee, I'm paying them. There are also national insurance contributions that the law says, as an employer, my employer has to pay. You could think of those also as being essentially a tax on them employing me. So you might want to think about those as also part of what taxes are being included. And similarly for dividends, you might want to think about corporation tax being added on. That would increase the size of that first and third bar, um, but you'd still get the same kind of pattern that those the earnings is going to have a higher tax rate than, say, investment, which will have a higher rate than dividends and so on. And, but that's an important caveat to note. So this gray bar here shows you essentially that first, or this gray line shows you what that first bar looks like across the income distribution. So if what you imagine in your mind is that when people get incomes, they're basically just paying that headline rate on earnings. And that's a reasonable thing for you to be thinking about because, as I said, 75% of all income is in the form of earnings. What you'd expect is the average rate of tax, the share of someone's income that they're paying away in tax, would have this shape where it's rising relatively steeply um, below about half a million pounds. And then it sort of flattens out um, so that about two million pounds hits about 47% and then it's 47% pretty much thereafter. And that's caused by the fact that you know some of your income is at a lower rate and as you get a higher and higher income, that rate uh, gets closer and closer to what the top rate of tax is, uh, which including national insurance is 47%. So the next bar I'll show you is showing in practice, uh, the next line I'll show you is showing in practice, what is the share of someone's income that they are actually paying in tax? And what you can see is two kind of key things from, these, from this picture. The first is that the level of the blue line is significantly below the level of the gray line. So it's about seven, I mean, it, it, so it's about seven points on average below uh, that gray line. And so that's telling you that there's a substantial gap between what we think people are paying if we, if we assumed that everybody was paying just that headline rate and what they're actually paying. And you know, seven points might not sound like that much. If you think about it in kind of cash terms, someone earning say two million pounds, um, instead of paying, uh, by having this kind of lower effective rate, is getting £140,000 extra in income that they're getting to take home instead of paying in tax. They would be paying if they were paying the headline rate. So these kind of numbers are substantial. They add up. 
Um, I'll talk to you a bit more later on about how they add up in kind of the aggregate level. But even at the individual level, there's a serious amount of money that we're talking about here. The second thing is we typically think about the income tax system as the place where a lot of progressivity happens, as the place in which, you know, whereas the VAT rate is the same no matter who's paying it, income taxes vary by income levels in a way that you would think of as doing a lot of redistribution. And it's important to say here, there are lots of parts of the tax system that are doing different kinds of redistribution. The benefit system is also an important thing to take into account. But the income tax system is where we imagine a lot of redistribution is taking place. And so we think of a progressive system as being one in which, as your income goes up, the share of your income that you're paying in tax also goes up. What we see here is actually after about £600,000, we don't have a progressive tax system in practice. What you see is that actually the average uh, share of your income that you're paying away in tax is actually flat and flat from about a quarter of a million pounds and then declining from about six hundred thousand pounds. So these two key features that rates are actually much lower than the headline and that actually we kind of have this lack of progressivity are the, are the kind of key messages when we look at income only and sort of clear that those are things that we would naturally think about as income. Some of our earlier work showed the importance of, of capital gains which is not technically income as being essentially another form of money that people are receiving. In often, in many cases, it's people repackaging things that would otherwise be income and treating them as, as uh, capital gains so they can access the lower tax rates. When you take into account capital gains, the average effective tax rate, so this EATR thing is the effective average tax rate, the share of your uh, income that you're paying away, or income plus gains, that you're paying away in tax. And those average rates are much lower than we see uh, when you have income only and they decline much more steeply. Now, again, it's not a surprise to anybody that the tax rate on capital gains, if you know about capital gains, it's not a surprise that the tax rate on gains is lower than the tax rate on income. What we didn't previously know was how are those gains distributed across different people? If they were distributed completely equally, then you might expect that what we do is just have a parallel shift down in this distribution because everybody has some gains and that brings everyone's tax rates down. This is showing you that those gains are actually concentrated at the top of the distribution. So people who have the most income plus gains are the people who also have the most gains. So they're really concentrated at the top. Uh, and that means that those the, the value of those lower tax rates are being concentrated among a relatively smaller uh, subset of people. So to think about then uh, what does that mean across people? This is showing you here the average rate that's paid by somebody who has say two million pounds or four million pounds or you know down towards the bottom of this a hundred or two hundred thousand pounds. But to look at actually the variation at any given level, what you can do is to break that down and say, okay, suppose you'd look at, for example, so where it's nice and clear, suppose you take say 10 million pounds because there's, there's less noise to look at. So you can see what the picture is very clearly here. And that average rate that we saw that was on average over this whole range, 27%, although locally here, it's more like 21%. That average here is made up of a group of people who are paying much higher rates close to, so at the, at the 90th percentile, so 10% or more, 10% uh, of people are paying at least the headline rate effectively. They're paying what you might imagine if you just assumed everyone was paying the top rate of tax on earnings and they didn't have any other deductions, didn't have any reliefs, weren't making use of any other lower tax rates. There's about 10% of people who you can see are doing that. About a quarter of people uh, are way down here. So 10% of people have a rate of 10%. Uh, which is you know, spectacularly low. Um, and so these are people, uh, in this case, who are making use of uh, a, a part of the capital gains tax system that allows them to claim entrepreneur's relief. And that's a relief that actually has now been reduced in scope so that it's gone from a maximum of 10 million pounds to a maximum of 1 million pounds over your lifetime. Um, that's not to say that there aren't other kinds of low rate capital gains. Um, so you could get investment relief that still has a cap of 10 million pounds. But entrepreneur's relief, which was the driving feature here, uh, has now been reduced to a cap of one million pounds. Uh, but that means that some people have very, very low tax rates, while others have much, much higher tax rates uh, at the same level of income. And so this kind of disparity that there's a kind of five times gap almost between the lowest paying and the highest paying uh, people uh, at the same level of income means this isn't really just a story about, well, how do the rich compare to the less rich? And are, should the rich be paying more only in themselves? But actually, who among the rich should be paying more? What kinds of people is it that we should focus uh, energies on within the tax system if we were trying to raise more money? Because there's often a discussion, and there will be clearly a discussion now uh, in the current situation, 
uh, of thinking about where we're going to raise more money from in the coming years. And so as we're thinking about that, uh, it's important to think about the fact that there is this huge variation. To try to understand some of this variation a bit better and to kind of pin back to what I described earlier in terms of the different types of incomes that people can have access to. This uh, chart shows different bars by the kinds of main income source that people have. So the left handmost bar shows employees, that's people who have most of their income coming from employment, then self-employed people who have most income from self-employment, people with most of their income from partnership income, from pensions, from investment, and then a group that's called owner managers, which is people who have most of their income from investment, or most of the remuneration, from, you know, most of their income from investment, uh, and also uh, are directors of a closely held company, so a company where they're sort of owners and managers of the company. And what you see is that people who have uh, the majority of their income in the form of investment or who are owner managers, so who again have the majority as uh, income, but also they manage the company that they are, where those investments are taking place, are the people who are gaining the most uh, from this kind of system. So they, they're the ones who have the least uh, amount of income that's at these highest rates and actually have much larger amounts of their income and of capital gains, which are available to have lower tax rates. And so that's important because it helps us understand what kinds of people it is that are able to benefit from these lower rates and to see why it is that some people who are very rich are having to pay the kind of full tax rate of almost 47%, while other people are able to get much lower rates. So just to get a sense for scale and whether these numbers are big, this is that chart I showed you right at the start of the gap between the headline rate and those uh, effective rates uh, that people are paying in practice. And the gap between the gray bar, gray line and the blue line is worth in total eight billion pounds. So if you could make, this is a static estimate, if you could make those people who currently have those effective rates uh, along that blue line, shift them up to the gray line, so they're all paying the uh, headline rate, you would get another eight billion pounds in revenue. If you were to extend that, not only the headline rate to all income, but to income and all capital gains, then you get a further 12 billion pounds, so a total of 20 billion pounds that you'd get from putting all those things together. Now, an important huge caveat here is that this is a completely static estimate. It's not accounting directly for any kinds of dynamic effects that you might see. So you may be worried that people want to, if you were to say that everyone has to pay uh, that headline rate, you might be worried about effects of people migrating or about uh, doing some other kind of tax avoidance scheme. Um, but it's important to just get a sense of scale for what's the size of the amount of money that's not being collected in that sense, in that very direct sense, so that we can think, is this something we should be spending time thinking about and wondering about and trying to do something about? Because if this amount of money was small, we might say, okay, look, these rates are very low at the top, but there's hardly anyone there and it's hardly any money in total. Why are we spending time thinking about it? I think this shows us that it's something worthwhile thinking about, although I'm not saying that the result of this is everyone should then be paying exactly that gray line. Apart from anything else, part of that reason is that even if you were to equalize all tax rates, so to have the same rate on uh, income from dividends as you have on income from employment, and also to move gains to that same tax rate, there would still typically be various kinds of deductions and reliefs. And we think many of those have some sensible purpose, although there's uh, recent work by the National Audit Office saying these things may have a purpose, but if they do, it would be better to quantify them and see whether they are actually successful in what they're doing. But because those kinds of dedu deductions and reliefs in some cases do exist for reasons that we understand, we don't probably want to go and scrap the entire thing and force everyone to be at that top point. So an alternative that we suggest is an alternative minimum tax. So what that would do is to, to put a floor below the rate of tax that people could be paying, to say that nobody could pay, for example, less than 35% of their income or their income plus capital gains uh, in tax. And so the idea would be to say, you can have any given deduction, any given relief, any of these other kinds of things, have the, make use of capital gains as a, a way of lowering your tax rate. But you couldn't stack all of those things together in a way that means that actually what you're doing is to bring, to bring your uh, average tax rate below the rate of somebody who's uh, earning £100,000, which is about 35%, as I showed you at the start. And so if we were to do that, uh, the minimum rate, uh, at that minimum rate of 35%, if you did it on income only, you'd raise about £3 billion. So already that's a, a kind of significant and substantial amount of money. Um, but you get much more money if you include capital gains. And so that again raises this point that a lot of the reason for these lower rates at the top is driven by the fact that capital gains have a much lower tax rate. And so 
um, bringing capital gains into this as well, raising that 11 billion pounds um, is equivalent to either adding 2p on the basic rate uh, or to adding 5p on both the higher and additional rates at the same time. So the 2p on the basic rate is often the kind of thing, you know, raising money on the basic rate is a broad based way of raising money. It's the kind of thing that one might often hear recommended as a way of raising money if you need more cash, which we probably will do in the next few years at some point. Um, you could get the same kind of money focusing attacks on the rich, but rather than saying, okay, the way of getting that money from attacks on the rich is let's put 5p on the basic rate, on the higher and additional rates, which is something I think nobody thinks is credible, among other reasons, because there you would expect large avoidance responses. This would be saying we could get the same amount of money without having to raise the headline rates uh, on people who, at the top and focusing the uh, gains, essentially focusing the money that would be brought in on the people at the top who are paying the least. And at the same time, it's also minimizing the ability for uh, complicated avoidance behaviors because it's about saying, well, whatever various things that you might be able to stack together, any combination of, reduction, uh, of deductions, reliefs, different kinds of incomes or gains, you can't combine those things in a way that gets you below 35%. And so that's the kind of policy, the US already has some kind of alternative minimum tax. So it's not the kind of policy that's never been heard of before. And we already in the UK actually have a policy that limits uh, for a particular set of reliefs, the maximum amount of relief that you claim. So that principle is already established. It would just be about extending that principle uh, to a kind of broader context to say, look, this is not the prettiest way to design a tax system, but given how hard we know it is to make sure that people have access to various deductions and reliefs that are valid while limiting the scope for uh, significant avoidance behaviors by a minority, this would be a way of doing something like that. Thanks very much. Okay, thank you uh, very much, Aaron. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned, uh, next of all, uh, it's Helen Miller to uh, respond for about five minutes now. Helen. Great, thanks, Ed. So I thought I'd use my um, few minutes just to pick up on a couple of issues that I think relate to the policy implications that might flow from uh, the work that Arun's just set out. So the first edition is about measurement. So I think in the past, there's probably tended to be too much emphasis, at least in policy debates, on income tax, in part because there are good statistics about income tax. So it's great that we now have access to the tax records at HMRC so we can see more about uh, people's incomes and where they are, um, including about capital gains. So it's great that we have that. In many ways, we're seeing what we expected to see, which is because we have a tax system that taxes capital gains and dividends at lower tax rates than labour income, and because that income is at the top, you can get some lower tax rates at the top. So it's good that we can now put some, some numbers on that. But I think in the back of our mind, we should always have the caveat, the kind of, but we still can't measure everything. So obviously, I'm sure Arun and I both love to measure everything, and we can't. So just to kind of put out some of the issues that Arun also raises in the report, there are still lots of incomes that we can't include in these kinds of calculations. So for example, we've talked a lot about capital gains. There are still big capital gains that aren't in the data. So for example, there is £27 billion of capital gains relief to um, gains on main homes. We don't tax it. But nevertheless, it is still there and in the system. And even if we want to focus just on income that comes from work, um, then again, and as the room sort of set out at the start, when you're thinking about the bars, about how we tax different types of income, we should really be thinking about employer national insurance contributions and corporation tax. And those things aren't straightforward to include in these kinds of calculations, and you can't do it without some assumptions. Um, but nevertheless, they are part of the system and they are there. And they can matter when you think about what to do about some of these things. So just to pick an example, entrepreneur's relief is a problematic part of the system. And Arun mentioned the 10% rate, but that does come on top of a 19% corporation tax uh, rate that's kind of paid first. So whether you put that into the calculations or not affects the rate you're talking about. So, so these things matter, even though we can't measure them. So I guess you know, more data is great. And we'd always like more of it, but we shouldn't make the old mistakes of only focusing too narrowly on what we can measure and always have in the back of our minds that there's, there's other stuff. And then following from that, the second issue I thought I'd just pause on was about how the system should be reformed going uh, forward. Now, of course, people will have different views about the overall level of tax on the rich or how progressive the tax system should be. And there are political debates to be had there. But the fact that we give very different tax rates to different types of income is a problem. I think Arun highlighted the unfairness of the fact that you can have two people earning the same overall income getting very different tax rates. That's a source of unfairness in the tax system. But actually, that's just one of a whole range of problems that are caused by these differential tax rates. 
And as you can imagine, at IFS, we've been thinking uh, a lot for decades about how you fix the tax system. And I think it's just worth thinking about why we have the tax system we have to start with. And I don't think it's just because some politicians thought they would give a bung to some rich people by having lower capital uh, taxes. We've had this system in place for a long time in the UK, including through Labour governments, and it happens actually in many countries across the world. And I think what's really happening is that effectively policymakers all over the world, <clears throat> excuse me, are grappling with a perceived trade-off. So on the one hand, you want to put up dividend tax rates and capital gains tax rates to try to level them out with labour income tax rates for fairness and to stop um, kind of tax-motivated income shifting. But on the other hand, when you do that, you worry about the incentive to save and invest and entrepreneurship. And actually, if you look at policymakers making statements, you often see these kinds of quotes. They, the rates go up and down, especially capital gains tax rates, as policymakers pick different points in that trade-off. They worry about equality, they put rates up. They worry about savings, they put rates down. And we have this yo-yoing effect that, that's, that's really quite horrible. And I think the good news is that we can sort of design that problem away. We, we could sort out the tax base. I'm going to spare you the technical details because I haven't got much time. But we could sort out the tax base, so the full set of reliefs and how we decide which bits of capital gains are taxed, in such a way that we could remove the distortions to savings and investments. If we actually did that and grappled properly with the quite technical, much harder to understand, but very you know, uh, important tax base problems, we could then align rates. For example, we could align capital gains tax rates with labouring, overall rates with labour uh, rates without worrying about the savings incentives and I think that is super important because it would mean all sorts of things I mean, it would mean for example that revenue would be lower than the calculations that Arun set out I'm basically proposing that we should align rates but also narrow the tax base overall in, in many ways so I think the revenue we wouldn't get as much revenue um, and there would be a, a range of issues we had to think about for example getting rid of reliefs like forgiveness at death to stop the kind of behavioral responses that Arun was talking about so it's a harder policy mix there's more to think about but if we did it then actually we would be left i think with a much more stable tax system and rather than just picking a new point in the trade-off that says we'll have high rates for now but maybe in five years another government will change their minds we'd have a stable tax system that solves the underlying problems then we could set the rates without worrying about those issues so I guess my sort of plea for the policy debate that hopefully will follow from some of the work that you know, Arun and Andy are doing is that we should think about all bits of tax and how they interact and try to improve the design of the overall system and not just get hung up on patching up the problem that's currently easy to see. So not just shoving up rates, but solving the bigger problem. OK, uh, thanks a lot, Helen. That was, that was really interesting. And what I might do, actually, is after, after yours and Emma's contributions, perhaps uh, Arun and uh, Andy might have something to say about uh, what you've said. But first of all, uh, Emma. Yeah, um, thanks, Ed. And I'm very happy to be here talking about this topic today because I think it is, you know, we haven't really touched on this, but there's a whole context of which this is happening. Um, the coronavirus sort of economic response has meant that um, the Chancellor's had to, um, you know, support businesses, support people who've lost their jobs. Um, and that's obviously cost money. Um, it's estimates of, I think it's 300 billion um, deficit and sort of growing at the moment. So these topics of the government is very much thinking about how are we going to raise or potentially, you know, what can we use to, to raise money um, and tax is one option. Um, so I think that, you know, the research is, is very timely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just I'll just a bit like Helen sort of talk through some of the areas I found um, most interesting. Um, the first I'd say is this variance between um, the differences of what the rich actually pay, because, um, you know, I mean, I think generally people have a tendency to kind of see you know, wealthy people, rich people as a, as a sort of homogenous group. Um, and this, this, this piece of research actually shows the differences between you know, somebody earning £100,000 um, who most people in the UK who, you know, medium is, earns is much lower than that. Most people would think £100,000 is, is a well-off person. Um, but somebody earning that much from, say, employment versus somebody who's an investor um, earning £10 million, pounds, I mean, there's, from their investments, um, is a very different um, group of people. And I think that we haven't really had data or understanding about the differences in which, in the ways those different groups pay tax. Um, so I think this is very important. Um, and certainly from the FT perspective, you know, my readers, you know, FT readers do tend to be on the wealthier um, size compared to, to the average person, potentially. 
Um, but they really feel this. And I think that that is an issue that people, rich people, wealthier people will feel um, the sense of, well, am I really wealthy? Um, you know, I'm sure everyone remembers um, during the general election, there was that man on question time. He was he was outraged that he would be considered a higher earner, even though he was earning £80,000 in a year. Um, and, and I think that, that, you know, that sense of relativity, well, okay, um, I'm earning £1 million, but you know, the people I associate with are earning much more than that. So, you know, I think that it's, it's interesting um, for us to think about the definition of, of what is wealthy and um, with this data, maybe further data, unpick these different um, tranches of, of wealth people and what they actually pay. Um, so that's one thing I thought, you know, really this research helps move that debate um, and understanding on. And then the other issue, which we sort of t- touched on a little bit, is this topic of, of sort of fairness, um, which is really quite loaded term, in, especially in, in tax, um, because you know, one person feels something's unfair, another person feels that it's fair. Um, and, you know, this, this research um, that's been done, which you know, gives us lots of, of sort of sticking points and um, debates, um, just for example, um, Erin talks about people who are earning £10 million, um, usually through remuneration, not just income, through earnings, but through other means. And on average, they were paying a 21% effective tax rate, which is the same as somebody um, earning, paying, you know, earning £30,000 just from employment. And, you know, you could say, well, that is, is some people would argue, you know, how's that fair, um, earning much more, and yet paying a similar level of tax. Um, but from the other side of the fence, um, those people are not doing anything wrong. Um, the tax system has been set up to allow them to do that. And they're sort of legitimately, um, you know, filing their taxes, being clear and, and transparent about what they're doing. Um, and so it's, it's just, you know, this idea of what is fair um, needs to take into account of um, the reasons why, why the tax system is set up in the first place, which is, I think, Helen's point. You know, do you think that this research and this time that we're in um, really gives us an opportunity to think about what is a tax system for? Um, why are these are they all these different reliefs? Um, how effective are these reliefs? Are they actually doing what they what they should be doing? Um, if we do want to make raise more money, is it is it fair for us to raise? money off this particular group um even if and they say like say investors or owner managers um you know some would argue they're entrepreneurs they're creating jobs um why they should receive something for their increased risk taking i mean that's one argument what's necessarily my argument but it's it's certainly one um perspective and i think that this is a you know this we're, we're in such a kind of critical point in terms of public finances and the need to raise probably a lot more money um, going forward that we should try and think sort of bigger in terms of what what do we need to do and what's the tax system for and and if you if you get that kind of buy-in um, from people as to as to this is the reason why this exists I feel that wealthier people and, and just people in general could understand that and feel like okay well there's a, there's a rationale for this as opposed to just some people sort of you know who don't have money wanting to take money from people who do have money which always becomes quite you know fractious very quickly um so yeah that, that's what i'd add brilliant uh, thank you so, so much emma um and uh, we have lots of questions coming in already uh, actually so uh if you if you want to ask a question, obviously you can leave that question on the Q and A on Zoom or on Facebook uh, as well. And ideally, say who you are, where you're from, uh, your affiliation. And if you want that question to be directed to a particular member of the panel, uh, then please make that specific. Otherwise, I'll just kind of dribble them uh, out between panel members. Um, but already, actually, they're coming in. And what I might do is just is just kind of synthesise a few of them. Uh, and obviously, if, if any of the panellists want to respond to something one of the other panellists uh, says, then please do so. But perhaps given there's so many of them, it might be worth just kind of getting on with them uh, relatively quickly. So um, first question just from Zoom, uh, George Turner from Reading. Do you have any sense of how much the lower uh, effective tax rates? And I suppose this is going to be one for you, uh, 
uh, Arun and, uh, and Andy, uh, of how much those lower effective tax rates are driven by government policy, how much by avoidance, uh, and how much of this is people having genuine capital gains and government charging them uh, a lower rate. So how much is people creating capital gains to disguise what should be considered income? And this, I'm sure, this goes to, I think, a little bit to the paper that you wrote um, uh, a month or so ago. Um, great. So yeah, I, I could I could take that question, and that actually it very helpfully links to some of the points that um, that Emma and, and Helen already made. Um, I think the short answer to that question is pretty much all of our findings are driven by um, questions of policy design rather than kind of rogue behaviour of individual taxpayers engaging in complex tax avoidance schemes. Um, in fact. To the extent that those sorts of avoidance behaviours are happening, we're actually probably not capturing them in our results because our results are based on the amount of tax you pay as a share of your taxable income and your taxable gains, meaning the amount of income and gains that you actually report to HMRC. So obviously that won't include any um, income or gains that you illegally evade if you kind of lie to the tax authority but it actually also often won't include any um, the consequences of many avoidance schemes which work by reducing the amount of income that is taxable um, in the first place so in that sense we're not capturing um, those sorts of behavior but really the most important point is that these large um, differences that we do observe are based on clear policy choices to tax different forms of um, income and gains in different ways and to allow these kind of uncapped um, reliefs. And I think going back to then to, um, to Helen's point on that, I think, um, I, I think I agree with pretty much all of what she said. Um, that I think the main thing that we're trying to highlight with this research is this important difference between the headline rates, which most people kind of hold in their heads, perhaps when they think about how much tax the rich pay, you know, a lot more people would be able to tell you what's the top rate of um, income tax than would be able to tell you anything about um, the, many of the other issues that we've been talking about today. So the first point is what really matters for the both incentives that people have and the fairness of the tax system is this idea of effective rates. But then Helen's also, I think, absolutely right to say you then get into some even trickier questions of measurement about what you're um, including in terms of the types of things that you count in terms of receipts and also the types of tax that you um, take into account, whether it's only on individuals um, or on firms. And I suppose in a way, you know, just to reiterate the um, the call for trying to do this measurement better, because I think that the thing that where tax policy design has really gone wrong over a, a long period of years is introducing measures, policy measures, without having that solid measurement in place. And so just to give you one example, um, I think Aaron mentioned earlier, um, and perhaps Helen mentioned as well, um, entrepreneurs relief which was recently capped in the last budget. This was the special 10% tax rate on gains um, for people who, are, who work in the business that they also invest in. That was capped at 1 million in lifetime gains instead of 10 million as originally. Um, and I think um, that followed a great deal of pressure from the likes of Helen and IFS carefully painstakingly exposing how this relief was actually not achieving the incentive effects that it was supposed to achieve. But just to point out, um, probably many people will have heard of entrepreneurs relief now it's been capped. I wonder how many people have heard of investors relief, which still exists with a 10 million pound cap. And the first claims were made in the most recent tax year 2019-20. We again have this other relief which hasn't been properly tested in terms of its effectiveness on incentivizing investment. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if in a few years time when Arun and I and Helen are back in the HMRC data lab, that we do some analysis and find out once again, investors relief actually not very effective at incentivizing investment, but extremely costly. And I think it's really important at this time when, when public finances are kind of under pressure, that we really scrutinise these sorts of relief before we um, 
before it costs a lot of money. Okay, I, um, I'm going to just move on to um, uh, more questions because we have lots of them coming in and uh, there, are, there is so much to cover, especially on Facebook. It's a very international audience. And so I want to cover two questions from Latin America. Um, as Emma was saying, I mean, this, this is an issue, the question of, you know, whether the wealthy uh, should pay more tax, whether there should be wealth tax is not something that's, that's isolated to, to the UK. Um, so uh, Jose Manuel Martin Coronado from uh, Peru, uh, a general question, rich people pay, uh, always pay more in absolute terms. The political discussion is that they should pay even more in relative terms. So is there some way of clarifying to the general public as well as the, uh, the difference between the nominal tax rate and the real effective rate that people pay? So a kind of question of effective rates versus uh, amounts there. Uh, and also uh, from Argentina, Roberto Jose Andres Calaus. Uh, he says, in Argentina, my country, the government are thinking of imposing a unique tax for, for high wealth. Uh, it is, uh, is this going to be a controversial move? So um, I don't know if there are any of the panelists particularly who want to pick up on those, on those points. Just butt in if you do. I don't mind picking up on the sort of wealth tax aspect. Um, because um, that's something that's also been talked about, sort of, there's been more calls for it in, in the UK as well. And I think that that's a policy measure that maybe, you know, internationally um, through Argentina, other countries in the world are, are likely, is also probably going up the agenda as a possibility there too. Um, so, yeah, I mean, to answer the question, I think it would be, you know, pretty controversial. Um, certainly, when I've written about it as a as a potential um, policy, it's it's got a lot of um, responses, mostly negative from um, from people who who would be likely to pay it. Um, I mean, I think the, the key issues are sort of you know a wealth tax, the sort of pro case, um, especially if it's a one off. You know, people say, well, um, like a lot of the people who are who are affected by the amount of money governments around the world have had to sort of shell out are going to be younger people who are going to be working longer, paying off taxes longer. Um, so why should younger people who um, maybe arguably more, sort of less uh, sort of affected by the, the risks of the virus um, be forced to pay for it compared to people who are retired, um, for example? So, you know, the thing about wealth tax is that it, it might take money from people who are older, who've already gained a lot from the system. Um, that's one pro, potentially. And, and maybe if it's a one-off, people might be more willing to pay it, um, especially as it's an extraordinary measure. Um, sort of downsides, arguments tend to be, you know, what about people who have um, lots of, you know, sort of assets like property, but you know, don't actually have the cash and are they going to have to sell their assets? Um, and could that lead to problems? And also collection and avoidance, potentially. So, so yeah, I mean, I think that wealth tax um, increased possibility, but there are still problems with it. Just to okay, briefly, um, yes. just, one yeah, sure. uh, but just to briefly add on a wealth tax that Andy and I are coordinating a huge project uh, looking at the possibility of a wealth tax for the UK. We're at this point neither pro it, thinking it's a brilliant idea and we just need to do it, nor are we against it and thinking it's necessarily terrible. Um, but we have a new project that involves lots of organisations, including the IFS. Um, and there'll be a launch event uh, on the 2nd of July at the IFS uh, for this project. We'll be trying to study the very practical uh, issues of avoidance and how you value things and all of these kind of technical and legal issues, as well as the economics of it and whether it makes sense as, a, as an idea, as well as the kind of public attitudes issues of whether uh, you know, how people feel about it and what kinds of people feel differently about it, as well as the administrative issues uh, of whether we could do the practical implementation. Um, so something, something definitely to think about. Yeah. Can I just so so to build on one of those questions, though. Um, so in the UK, the top one percent of earners uh, pay, I think it's more than a third, is it, of, of, of income tax, at least when you're looking at income tax specifically. And so none of your research, you know, uh, is kind of negates that. Is that's 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 the highest proportion that the wealthy have paid in quite some time. So I mean, like just more broadly, are the rich paying more taxes now than they have done in the past, as as a percentage of the total tax take? And so, does that kind of undermine any arguments that they should be paying more? 
so I think just very directly on that um, statistic, so I think the one you were referring to is quite often quoted, it's, it's nearly 30% of all income tax revenue is paid by the top 1% um, yeah, income, um, one. which is, of course, a lot um, in absolute terms, as I think one of the questioners um, mentioned. I mean, there's, there's a few factors that, why that's been um, growing as a share, and probably the main one is the increase in personal allowance at the bottom means that um, a lot uh, fewer people overall are paying income tax, and therefore whatever amount it is that the top pay therefore kind of mechanically becomes um, a larger share. I think the other thing that's fair to point out that we really emphasize actually in this research is it's not true to say that all of um, the rich are paying low amounts of tax. Actually, I think one of the points we strongly want to get across is that there's a large cohort of particularly high earning employees, and there are a lot of them in the top 1% who are paying close to headline rates on a large amount of income. And that's what generates a large amount of income tax over overall. And I think that proposition is consistent with also saying that there are some people who, as a proportion of their total income and gains, don't pay such a large share. Can I just add on quickly to that? I think you can separate yeah. out the question about how you should tax capital income relative to labour income and the question of how you should tax the rich overall. So I think, just regardless how much you want to tax them, it's still hard to justify why people um, getting their income from capital sources get lower tax rates than those getting it from labour sources. So you could decide, for example, to equalise the treatment at a lower level. You don't have to scale up, you could scale down um, so that you can sort of separate those two issues out. Okay, uh, so um, let's move on. There's quite a few questions about capital gains tax and just capital gains in general. Um, so let me just run through a few of them and then perhaps uh, the panel, uh, and in particular Andy and uh, Aaron might have some thoughts on this. So uh, William Claxton-Smith, um, how significant a part of the capital gain comes from carried interest? So I know you've done some work on that. So carried interest, uh, how much of, um, of these gains are carried interest? Uh, Heather Self, uh, says uh, how much of this 20 billion gap uh, could be raised by simply equalizing capital gains tax and income tax rates so the kind of nigel lawson thing and assuming no entrepreneurs relief as well francis woolley says um so one rationale for taxing capital gains at a lower rate is some capital gains reflect inflationary gains so what do you think of taxing real capital gains so kind of making in real terms instead of nominal capital gains and then kind of raising the rate on those capital gains um and then uh, another question, uh, Antoine Guinness-Gregoire from Montreal. Are your results robust to using five or 10 year moving means of income or capital gains? I, some people have high income or gains only once in their life. So this I think goes back to the, you know, is it an entrepreneur's relief that's just a one-off uh, rather than a continuous uh, annual thing? So uh, quite a few questions there, but if you could take as many of them as you can. Yeah, so, um, so perhaps, um, I think there are quite a few questions there. Perhaps if I take the ones on, on carried interest and inflation okay. and could maybe take the ones on revenue and averages of gains. Um, so first of all, on, on carried interest, yes, there's some more findings um, in the body of our report um, looking at the um, amount of carried interest gains that were taxed um, subject to capital gains tax at 28% in, in 2017. So just to explain what a carried interest is a way um, of receiving um, a reward for the performance of a private equity fund manager. So they receive um, some of their remuneration in the form of a management fee, which you can think of a bit like your basic salary, um, but it's based on just a fixed percentage of the size of the fund that you manage. Um, that's actually taxed as income and subject to ordinary income tax rates. But this um, carried interest that the questioner is asking about, um, that is like a effectively like a bonus for good performance of the fund. Um, and much of carried interest is subject to capital gains tax. The reason why I say um, most is because there have been some complicated reforms just over recent years that mean that some carried interest is taxed as income. But this carried interest that's taxed as a capital gain and therefore subject to a lower rate of 28% instead of the effectively 47% rate um, that would apply if it was taxed as um, earnings. We find in our report that in 20, the tax year 2016-17, there was a total of 2.3 billion 
in carried interest, but that went to just 2,000 individuals. Um, so 2,000 individuals took 2.3 billion between them. That's um, a bit over 1 million each, except actually it's quite unevenly distributed within that group and that we find that over half of all carried interest went to individuals who got over 7 million in capital gains um, each. Um, so it's a small number of people, but a large amount of revenue. And I think you know, that, um, there's, there's an active debate about the appropriate tax treatment of carried interest. Um, probably won't go through all of that again um, now, but I think it's, it's, there's, again, significant amount of revenue on the table there. Um, just briefly on inflation. Um, so it's true that when you're thinking about um, capital gains, under our current tax system, we tax the nominal gain, so just the amount in pounds that the asset has gone up in value, not taking account of inflation that's occurred over the same period. And I think quite a sensible um, policy that was actually adopted by Nigel Lawson as Conservative um, Chancellor in 1988 was to align the income tax rates and the capital gains tax rates like we've been suggesting, but with an allowance for inflation. Um, and actually, it would not be a particularly radical um, reform to go back to um, that position. Um, we do, in some earlier work, look at um, the effect of that indexation allowance on measured gains, and I'll hand over to Aaron to, to just talk about those issues. Yeah, so just to kind of pick up on the two questions that were for me. So one was uh, on this point about equalising rates, um, when you do that, in terms of the 20 billion number that we have, um, we don't. So we don't have a precise revenue estimate for that. Partly because what we were doing, this was very actively what we were doing in the data lab at HMRC when we got shut out uh, because of coronavirus. Uh, so that means there's a lot of questions that we had that we were very actively working on, including trying to break down in a bit more detail um, what deductions and reliefs among the bit that comes from deductions and reliefs, uh, which deductions and reliefs that comes from. But what we did see was, and what we can say is that. Uh, the biggest part of this kind of 20 billion gap is about the different sources of income or gains that people are using rather than deductions or reliefs. So the majority of that gap, certainly you would get just by the rate equalization point rather than uh, being driven by some other complicated set of deductions and reliefs. But obviously, those other things are important. And then there's a the kind of wider question of which of those we should have, how should they should be structured. Uh, and that's you know something that when the world reopens, uh, you should watch this space and we'll hopefully say more. Um, on the point about moving averages, something that we showed in the uh, in our previous work was that although certainly at the very top, so these people who are around 10 million pounds, that's really driven by the kind of one hit wonders who are there to kind of claim their entrepreneurs reef that was capped at 10 million pounds uh, as a one off. Um, when you get down towards the sort of like 1 million pounds and below mark, uh, and certainly once you get around 100,000 pounds of capital gains, which is typically people who have, you know, three to 400,000 pounds of total uh, of total remuneration. Um, those are kind of actually much more stable and those people are moving around a lot less. And so certainly those individuals, it's not that they necessarily would always have the same amount of gains and therefore always be at the same point in that kind of up down spectrum I showed you of what is their average tax rate. But the people who are getting gains are often getting that kind of regularly. So about a third of people who have substantial gains are getting those on, a, on an annual basis. So they get the same kind of gains every year. Certainly there are some people who are getting these kind of one offs and particularly at the very top end, you should expect to see that. Um, but sort of further down, which are still high levels of total remuneration, there is a lot more regularity in that. And so those are people who are regularly paying lower rates than uh, the kind of headline rate. OK, great. Um, we're running kind of slightly low on time. Um, I don't know if either uh, Emma or Helen wanted to add anything on to, to that. There, there, was, um, there was another question, by the way, uh, on, um, uh, from someone in uh, UNICEF in Geneva, uh, about inheritance tax and whether that's kind of a trap. I don't know if, Helen, did you have any thoughts about inheritance tax or indeed the kind of Lawson, you know, equalising CGT and, and income tax? Because those are big things that keep coming up. Yeah, so on the Lawson point, I mean, yes, it's kind of what I was saying, that I think if we just align tax rates and we ignore the tax base, we kind of get it wrong and we change distortions. We get rid of some distortions, we create other distortions. I mean, just to be, be rude, like a simple example, if somebody has an asset, and all they get is inflationary gains, and they held it for 50 years, they could have some really large gains. And you absolutely don't want to be taxing that because we don't want to be taxing people who basically just saved and just you know, decided to spend in a later period. Um, so what, what I meant by changing the base was make sure that basically 
if your gain only reflects inflation or more broadly, if all you've done really is save some money and get a gain at a later point in time in order to sort of move your consumption later, we don't be taxing you at all. Um, so take that out of tax. Once you earn more than that, either because you've put in some effort or you got lucky, then we should tax the income that results. And it's, it's, that, it's that combination of base and rate that means you can take away the savings distortions and then tax income fairly. So I think that's not just a nice to have, it's a absolutely central to what I would do uh, to the tax system. Um, on inheritance tax, very quickly, I mean, that's a different, it's a different tax. It does something different. Um, and it doesn't change what I think we should do to taxations of incomes in life. I think we should have, we should fix taxation of income in life. Then it's a political choice as to whether you also want to tax incomes that are passed on. I think people vary depending on whether they see it as income of the giver or income of the receiver. I think one big problem with the current tax inheritance tax we have is that it can be avoided um, by those at the very top. So it's kind of an unfairness in the system because it's sort of middle, the sort of middling rich people that pay it, which I think is a problem with the tax as it stands. Okay. Um, Oh. Sorry, yeah, go very briefly on um, inheritance tax, just to actually plug some um, additional work that was done by the Office for Tax Simplification um, late last year that, looked, that did a very similar exercise to Aaron and, and I, but with inheritance tax. So looking at how the effective um, average tax rate on inheritance tax compares with the headline rate. And maybe some people will, be, will know the headline rate of um, inheritance tax is 40%. Um, above a um, threshold of about £325,000. But what the Office for Tax Simplification showed, much like Aaron and my um, work here with income and capital gains, was that the effective rate was much lower than that. And in fact, um, it never, on average, the effective average tax rate never got above 20%. Um, and in fact, it declined um, for the largest estate, so that for estates valued at 10 million, the effective average tax rate was 10%. And so across the tax system, um, you know, there are other areas where this point about thinking carefully about effective rates rather than only looking at the headline rate becomes very important. Okay, um, we're kind of getting towards the end, but what I'm going to do is I'll, I'll just do a few more questions. And if the panelists are happy to, to you know, just to, to, to stay here for a little bit longer, then that would be great because there's just so many coming through now quickly um uh jim aleo on about uh, lse alumnus says uh, is it possible to have any taxation without international collective action obviously when it relates to the top one percent who have plenty of resources to dodge their taxes way beyond the uk framework uh, and then a kind of related question uh, from rod uh, dubitsky founder of the people's economist can you talk about the impact of offshore tax havens the uk's role as enabler and impact on global effective tax rates uh, of that and then Oliver Turton uh, at Grammar School Leeds says, uh, given the wealthiest 2% uh, of London pays 50% of income tax there, comes back to that uh, old point. Um, is it not likely that if you're going to push these taxes up, that these earners will simply emigrate or set up overseas? And as a result, we risk losing their tax contributions entirely. So I don't know if uh, any panellists in particular, Emma, you said you've, you've had lots of readers who were slightly shocked about the idea of having to pay more uh, of their taxes, it sounds like this, this kind of goes along those lines entirely. Yeah, um, no, I think it's a really important point because this, you know, the international, the thing is that with wealthier people, they do tend to be you know, more internationally mobile, um, they have freedom to sort of move around. Um, and there is always this, this uh, argument and, you know, risk that if you put up taxes, that could lead to flight. I mean, I don't, I don't know, maybe somebody, um, yeah, others might have more data about that, but speaking as a as a sort of journalist that that writes for kind of wealthier wealthier people, um, that's definitely something people say. Um, it is a concern because, um, yeah, but it is a concern. But we just don't quite know how much people act on it. And then the other thing to, to add is that I certainly know that the the international um, tax space has has changed in recent years following the Panama Papers. There's a lot more sort of sharing of data um, from, 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 you know, all sorts of places, including the you know, areas that consider tax havens, they share their data on bank accounts and, um, and other, other assets that are held. So it is, you know, in theory, harder to hide, um, you know, assets or, or just, you know, sort of st stuff them offshore. But um, yeah, it's still relatively early on in that process, but I, don't, I think it's going to get harder for people going forward. Yeah, and I just wonder, you know, in an era of, of more kind of, of, of 
possibly more bars on capital mobility whether things change i mean we have been living in in you know a generation where there's been kind of unprecedented freedom of movement of capital and you know there are all sorts of reasons why that might may well change i'm going to add a couple more questions on and then we'll have this kind of uh, load of different this smorgasbord of questions that hopefully various people on the panel will have some thoughts on so uh, jess groom says why would entrepreneurs take the risk of investing their own already tax savings to start a new business when they might as well truck along with a safer job that uh, safer job that gets them taxed at the same rate so that goes to that question of entrepreneurs relief or indeed cgt and, and the extent to which you need that to encourage entrepreneurship uh, alan buckle says is there any evidence that entrepreneurs and investors will invest less uh, or work less hard if rates rise for them and it's an interesting question i mean i i'm i've been struck by the it's seeming kind of absence of, of research on the extent to which entrepreneurs relief or investors relief actually makes a difference to productivity i don't know if we have if the panel panel have any answers on those kind of questions or indeed the ones uh before so well, sorry, sure. uh, yeah. helen has a very well um, well prepared script on entrepreneurs relief having said so let me try to be the quick version so the, I mean, the problem with entrepreneurs relief partly is it's a horribly named relief and luckily it's been renamed um uh, business asset disposal relief which i think is you know it's, it's much better um it, it does you know if you're an entrepreneur and you're doing entrepreneurial stuff you can use it if you're not an entrepreneurial and you're not doing entrepreneurial stuff, you can also use it. So it's very poorly targeted that a lot of the people who are getting the tax benefits are doing perfectly valid things, but they're just doing basically labor income stuff and they're getting the reward. So it's a very horribly targeted uh, relief. If you, um, actually we do have research um, using the HMRC tax record showing that if you take people who are getting entrepreneurs, you take people who are in companies and you look at what happens when you change their tax rates, they save more or less in their company they don't do more investment or more employing people they just save more or less in their company depending on the tax rates so they shift their income across time a lot and actually might worry about that because you don't want people to distort their choices based on the tax system but they're not really doing more investment as a result so we haven't got good we've got good evidence and it doesn't go the way people think if we do want to think about how to um support entrepreneurship or you know worry about these types of groups we should think about other ways of, um, of doing it. So, for example, one big thing is risk. If people are taking on risks, we have to think about what happens when people get big returns if they're lucky and they succeed. We should also think about what happens if they don't succeed and they get big losses. So the system currently is asymmetric and it basically takes more from you if you win than it shares with you if you lose. So we could think about how the tax system treats losses as well as profits. And there are other things we could think about in that vein of rather than just saying, here's a relief that's called entrepreneur's relief, let's think about, you know, get rid of that and let's think about what is it that's holding up people or where does the tax system discourage investment savings and target those issues directly can i just quickly raise a more and more general yeah. point arising from that which is i think it's really important that we um distinguish and the questions kind of raise um different types of behavioral response that we should um, distinguish between kind of real behavioural responses, so where people are actually doing things differently, like they might be migrating or changing their investment decisions in a substantive way, and distinguish those from kind of artificial responses, which are essentially moving things around in the way that you account for things on paper um, and often in tax policy debates those things kind of get conflated and people assume that there's a lot of real behavioral responses going on when just as Helen's kind of outlined in the context of entrepreneurs relief a lot of what's actually happening turns out to be these artificial responses and they have quite different policy challenges um, I mean that a lot of the artificial responses result from the way that the tax system is designed and so I think we need to pay kind of closer attention generally to that okay all right fantastic uh well we're slightly we're slightly over our time but thank you everyone for for for, for hanging on i was looking at the participants numbers and, and they, they hadn't suddenly dropped off a cliff so so <laughs> you must have still been concentrating uh on all of this one final question actually i'm going to ask the, the panel and you can put your hands up if you uh uh depending on whether you agree do you think that the wealthy should pay more in taxes put your hands up if they you think they should yeah. It's a completely oh, political I'm... question. So I, I think you know, I think there's a, there's a political <laughs> question about whether the rich should pay more that I, I'm not, I'm not going to answer. Um, but I do think it's okay. to take the point. I think it's very difficult to justify why people who are able to rearrange their incomes to get it in the form of capital incomes pay lower rates. So I think you know, for political purpose, we should have a you know, a, the society should choose how much to uh, tax the rich relative to the poor, taking account the full set of taxes and benefits and all the other things we know are important. Whatever you just, whatever we decide, we should think about fairness across individuals who are similar but get their income very differently. Yeah. 
Yeah, and just to, I think to reiterate and come back to what we said earlier, I think one of the key points of our report today is to say it's not the question shouldn't only be how much should the rich pay, but actually really understanding that the rich is a very heterogeneous group of people with people paying very different levels of tax at the moment. And so actually we should be thinking about that much more than only thinking about kind of rich versus poor, which is often the kind of question we have. There we go. I tried to get my oversimplified question and answer <laughs> moment in there at the end. All of the questions from, from everyone uh, who's contributed questions were far more sophisticated than that. So thank you so much to everyone for, for all of your uh, questions and for listening. There will be more on this, as uh, Arun and uh, Andy were saying. There's more research to come, and indeed from uh, the IFS, and I'm sure uh, articles from Emma as well, uh, the FT. Uh, this issue is not going away. There'll be plenty more research to come. Uh, thank you. This uh, was brought to you by the LSE's International Inequalities uh, Institute. Uh, and thank you for listening. Uh, I'm Ed Conway. Uh, thank you to Helen, to Emma, uh, to Andy, uh, to Aaron. And thank you, everyone, for, for tuning in. Thank you.